up. Uh, Pequot Lakes High School students here, ladies today, helping clean up um, for the day of caring. So they helped clean up some of the flower beds and the prayer path. And they were doing such a good, I'm like, what is taking them so long on the prayer path? And I go out there and they're cutting like the t- this material roots out of the prayer path. I'm like, whoa, no. <laughs> whoa, we don't have to be this meticulous. It's, it's a dirt path in the woods. So that sped things up. And maybe they were listening to music and chatting. So, all right, so we've got two, count them, two uh, weeks left. So this is going to be um, exciting finale wrap-up. Um, I know there was some confusion. The question is, do, do you prefer to have a discussion leader on Wednesday nights, yes or no? That's the answer. Or for some of you, it's yes or on. You just turn the paper upside the other way, it's no. All right, so let's pray and then um, jump into 27. Well, actually, we'll start back in 26. But. Oh, Lord God, we come to you tonight, and we thank you for this fantastic day. I just continue to thank you for these individuals that are here and are desiring to grow in you and to understand you more fully and to respond to your instructions and to who you are. And so we just pray, Lord, that we would uh, be open and receptive to your word tonight and that we would be open and receptive to the conversations that we will have with each other uh, in, in the time that we get to spend together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, here we are. What I want to do is I actually want to start back in, in um, 26 because I really think uh, after reading through some commentaries on 27, reflecting on the, the question of last week, the end of last week about Judas, really the narrative flow of, of the end of 26 into 27 uh, is, is really there. And so that's what I want to, I want to go back to 26, 69. Um, so... Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and the servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with uh, Jesus, the Galilean. But he uh, denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for you, your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. 
Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even a single charge, uh, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered Pilate, when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with the righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and, dis- and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why, what evil has he done? But they all shouted, they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put on a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, 
that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among, them, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away, and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So, here we have arrived at this familiar story that oftentimes uh, we save for Easter as it is an Easter text, obviously, the crucifixion of Jesus and all of these things. And as I mentioned last week, sometimes when we come to these texts that are so familiar, it's hard for us to reorient our minds around seeing them with fresh eyes. And yet, as we read this, hopefully we have been able to see the trajectory of Matthew's narrative to this point and see how some of the same things are happening from the beginning to the end of Matthew's gospel and potentially see this in a new light. Starting with the reason why I wanted to read the, the Peter denial and before the Judas exchange is because Matthew gives us two different representations of two of Jesus' disciples and how they respond to mistakes that they make in the end of Jesus' life. And notice, Peter, after he denies, Jesus has predicted both of these will happen, after he does it, after he realizes what he has done, he weeps bitterly. And that's Matthew's description of, of how he responds to this. On the other hand, we have Judas, who uh, it says he changed his mind. And I know last week the question was, uh, where is Judas? And part of, as I've thought about this question, was 
why do we care? What is the impetus behind our question around if, G- if Judas somehow makes it to heaven or doesn't make it to heaven? And I honestly, I hadn't read ahead in any of the commentaries. There is loads of ink that has been spilt over this question. I mean, loads of, of ink about, I mean, throughout church history, Calvin breaking down how we are forgiven and the, the different steps that have to take place. And I was just, uh, I don't know if it matters. What I do know is it's interesting because Paul makes reference to this in his second letter to the Corinthians about this experience. Luke, in his uh, collection of texts, which is Luke and Acts, doesn't reference this until the beginning of Acts, which is an interesting segue from Jesus into the church. What we do know is that Judas regrets his decision. And so this brings up this very interesting thing that happens. When we realize we have done something wrong, we often regret it and say things like, I'm sorry I did that. Which is not an apology. Teresa's like, hmm? Because... Regretting a decision and saying I'm sorry is acknowledging uh, that was a mistake. For some people, it is a gateway. It is a necessary gateway to forgiveness. Uh, but it's not, it's not really seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. It's admitting, wow, that was a really stupid decision, and I wish I wouldn't have done that. We often stop there rather than saying, will you please forgive me? (laughs) That's kind of an important part. And it's interesting because Gary Chapman, the guy who wrote The Five Love Languages, also has this book called The Five Languages of Apology and how we each have an apology language, uh, a certain key word or words that we're looking for when somebody is seeking forgiveness from us. But notice we have two individuals who have been with Jesus for years. And they've been walking with Jesus. They have been his closest people. I mean, his 12 disciples are the closest people that are with him. They've been hearing what he's saying. They've been seeing the miracles. They've been experiencing all these things. And both of them, as they come down to the end of Jesus' life, they both make uh, grievous mistakes. And they both have very different responses. Peter is crushed by his verbal denial of Jesus, and Judas feels bad about the mistake he made, which leads to the crucifixion of Jesus. Yes? So the King James Version uh, uses the word repent. And it's interesting because as we look at different translations, there are different words. The challenge is throughout Matthew's Gospel, there is a specific Greek word for repentance. 
That is not used here. And so the King James Version, when they are making the translation decision, they are making a conscious decision to use the English word repent for effect, which is on the boundary of valid interpretations of this particular word. Yes. You don't, you're contending that Peter doesn't seek forgiveness? Well, yeah, we know, we know he doesn't at this point. We know what he has experienced, though, leads him to a much different pathway and trajectory than Judas's, what, where Judas is led to. Does he ask them for that back? Yeah, but he doesn't actually do he doesn't do anything after that. He's making factual statements about what he has done. He has betrayed Jesus. He has betrayed innocent blood. And now the consequences for his decision are in full view. And now he feels terrible. He has been, he has been caught red-handed. And he's like, oh, whoops, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Which, I mean, we have pages upon pages upon pages of speculation on this. The question that remains is, how is it that someone can follow Jesus, be so intimately connected with Jesus, and yet not experience actual transformation? So that when Judas is coming to the end of Jesus' life, he seems to not have been changed at all by being with Jesus and spending time with Jesus and hearing Jesus. And that becomes this interesting question of, as I seek to be a disciple of Jesus, am I actually being transformed? Am I changed at all? Or am I just following along with not allowing the words of Christ, the words of Jesus, to to make a difference in the decisions that I make? And that becomes the interesting question as we look at Peter and as we look at Judas and the decisions that they make and Matthew's highlighting of both of them and what are the other 10 doing and why are they free? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so repentance is turning and Judas doesn't seem to turn and I am absolutely not going to speculate about Judas's decision to end his own life. Yes. Yes. 
Yeah, right. Judas, Judas seems to blend in and the disciples don't even notice it all the way until the very end. And also, isn't it ironic that Peter chooses to take it, or the unknown, unnamed person chooses to pull his sword on some rando, wouldn't he go after Judas and be like, I can't believe that you have betrayed our Messiah? It's interesting. And it also is interesting about how, what do we do when we realize that we have done something or we have been caught doing something of grievous error with each other or with the Lord. It's an interesting thing to think about. So then Jesus appears before Pilate. Pilate makes this claim that he is the king of the Jews. And why is that? Because it's important, because there has to be a Roman charge against him. And if he is claiming to be a king that is going to potentially usurp Caesar, then there is the ability for him to be killed. So they make this Roman charge against him. Now notice what happens next. As as, uh, Pilate is standing there in front of the crowd, Who is the voice of reason? Yes, his wife. (laughs) And I know I've said it before, and I will continue to say it. Notice how important the females are within the story of Jesus in Matthew's narrative. When females show up, it's very important. Major things happen. And remember the last time there was a female in power in the Gospel of Matthew? What happened? Yes, John the Baptist gets beheaded. So notice the contrast of women that are married to men in authority and how Pilate's wife gets it. And she's like, you can't do this. And why can't he do it? Because she had a dream about it, which reminds me of all the conversation we had last year about how God chooses to communicate to us through dreams and visions. Now, I'm not saying God communicates to us through every single dream we have. Praise the Lord for that because, oh my word, okay? It's typically the, uh, you know, the dessert, not God speaking to me in my dreams about, yeah, long, it's a story for another time when I realized this. But notice that that God chooses to speak to a non-Jew in a very clear way in a dream about who Jesus is. It's this fascinating thing that often gets lost within the larger discussion about the end of Jesus' life. And Pilate really doesn't want to do it. And notice that the Accusations are these half-truths, they're not full-truths, about what Jesus has said throughout. And so the Jews, again, they choose to take this notorious criminal, Barabbas, in exchange for Jesus, which functions as this clear distinction of missing out on who the Messiah is. And also how the crowd, again, throughout Matthew's gospel, functions as one character within the narrative. And how people are swept up into the crowd and follow into this group think about the fact that Jesus should, in fact, be crucified. And so then we get all of this detail about 
what happens after this. The scourging of him, the beating of him, the crown of thorns, the mocking of him, the spitting on him, the humiliation of him, all of these things, the beating of him. And you know, this last Monday Thursday, we, we tried to have this tactile experience where we took various elements of this uh, time that Jesus experienced to try to give us a picture or a sensory experience of what Jesus would have gone through. And I was, I was surprised at how many people left their boxes and didn't want to take them with. And I was thinking about this. Was it that we didn't want to be reminded of it? Was that we don't want to have clutter in our house? What was it about that box that was like, okay, that was an interesting experience. I don't want to experience that again. And so when we talk about the crucifixion, you know, we could, we could spend all this time talking about the, the bloody, gory details. And if you've watched The Passion of the Christ uh, for all of Mel Gibson's issues, um, it's a pretty vivid realization of the magnitude that Jesus went through when he was crucified. You know, the, the massive, extensive beating that he goes through before he's even pierced by a spike. And how the reality is that, that, that most people would have been killed just by that. And yet he endures, and he endures, and then he endures being pinned with these metal spikes to this wooden cross. And for many of us, as we think about this, and as we think about the crucifixion, as we think about death, you know, we, we certainly in the Protestant tradition have, have sanitized, as what I have descri described as sanitized the cross. So whenever we have a cross, you know, it's, it's, it's empty. And the explanation is, well, Jesus is risen. Yeah, yes, he is. That is true. I wonder, though, if we haven't sanitized the reality and the magnitude of the cross so that we don't fully understand the cost of us being reconciled to God. Because the cost of us being reconciled to God is this bloody, brutal, grueling death. And the resurrection. And so when we look at a crucifix throughout church history, we see the physical body of Jesus hanging there, and our minds are transported to the magnitude of what that would have taken for him to hang there and to die there. But for us, we're like, oh, no, Jesus is off the cross. We don't want to look at a, a crucified Jesus. We just want to think about, you know, Jesus is my homeboy. or however we want to view Jesus. And I think it also falls into the reality of how we don't like to talk or look at death. We actually even have a hard time saying what death is. If somebody dies, we don't say, so-and-so died. 
They passed on. They're no longer with us. We use all these euphemisms to clean up the reality of what death is. You know, when somebody is coming to the, to the end of their life, we have create, created large structures where we put people because we don't want to have to deal with that. And, and I, the people that do hospice, I don't understand it. I don't know how they can do it because it is just beyond imaginable to me. <laughs> and yet there's something so powerful about understanding the reality of death. And so this summer, Amy's going to do this three-week uh, class dis- in this discussion about death and dying and how do we handle death and, and having these wonderful conversations around end of life. That's what we say, right? Because that sounds so much better. Well, their time has expired. And we brought up the reality of back in the day, if you lived out in a rural area, like back when Nisswa was rural, and somebody was sick, and they lived in the house, they're going to die in the house. And you're going to see the body, and you're going to see the body die. And that's an experience that you don't forget. I'll never forget. You'll never forget, the, I uh, have been on, the call, on call with the Brainerd, Fire, or Brainerd Police Department and you know, getting called in the middle of the night. We need you to come because somebody has died walking into these people's house and there's a dead body. You don't forget that stuff. <laughs> and likewise, if we take the time to truly think about and visualize the death of Jesus Christ, and the magnitude of what he suffered and went through, I think it has the ability to transform how we relate to him and to God, because he is God. And when we sanitize death and when we wipe the cross clean, we have a challenge around understanding the magnitude that Jesus went through. When he was beaten, and beaten again, and then nailed to this cross to endure his last moments of life hanging on this cross amidst all of this humiliation, amidst all of this, revel, this reviling that takes place by the crowd and the people and even the people that hang next to him. And the mockery that takes place And notice, again, notice the connection between the the testing of Jesus at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel about the claims of who he is and what he can do and what God will do and what is happening on the cross and how Satan is speaking in both of those cases, one as the devil and one as the crowd saying, if you really think that you can save yourself, just come on down and it'll be no big deal. And the question becomes, which you get to ponder tonight, I'm just going to give you a little little run-up to it. Who killed Jesus? I wasn't there.
Yeah, well, we did. Okay, that's great certainty from one person in the crowd. It's interesting because as we look at all of the actors that play a part in leading to the death of Jesus, the question becomes, if this has to happen, in order for humanity to be reconciled to God, this has to happen. If we believe that statement to be true, then in essence, God kills Jesus. But then there creates all sorts of implications about the idea of God killing Jesus. And in fact, it becomes this huge barrier within the first century around, you want me to follow a God who would kill his own son? Which is a fascinating question. Okay, so you, you people are cannibals. You're eating his blood and his, you know, he's eating his body and drinking his blood. And you're telling me that his dad, his father, wanted him crucified. And it creates this just mind-boggling, fascinating question for us to wrestle with. And then the question becomes, what does our answer say about our own theological conclusions? Because the words of Jesus in the garden were, I really don't want to do this. I think that's the living trans- New Living Translation's paraphrase. <laughs> if there's any other possible way I don't want to do this, and then he's on the cross and Matthew chooses these final words for Jesus. And it's this sense of abandonment. And I know we've, we've spent, I don't know how long, a long time, a number of months, maybe 12 months, talking about this idea of lamenting. And notice the final words of Jesus on the cross is a lament. Jesus chooses in his final words with his last breath in Matthew's gospel. And I understand other gospels have other words in his mouth at the, in, in the, on the cross. We're not reading those Gospels right now, and so we're trying to stay with this. Matthew sa- says that Jesus, that God has abandoned him. And when we talk about the life of Jesus and the, the experience of Jesus in his humanity on this earth, he experiences the full gamut of emotions, including this moment where he feels in this catastrophic end to his life that God has abandoned him. That is a Jesus that we can relate to. That is a Jesus who can relate to us. And gives us permission to say in these moments where we feel as though God has abandoned us, God, why, 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 why? Why have you forsaken me? And it's easy for us to say, well, I mean, he knows he's going to be resurrected, so what's the big deal? I mean, thank you, Jerry Seinfeld. What's the big deal? 
with the, the crucifixion if we know the resurrection is coming? Because he is a human being. <laughs> Jesus is fully human and he's experiencing the agony of, of abandonment by God. That is his perception of what he's experiencing on the cross. And he's like, God, why? Why is this happening? Further driving home the point that the magnitude of the crucifixion is so much more than we give it credit for. Like, yeah, yeah, let's get through Good Friday because we just want to celebrate on Easter. And I think if we would stop and ponder a little bit more about the magnitude of this experience, it, it might change how we understand the love that God has for us. The love that Jesus has for us. The enduring love that he has for us that he did all of these things and that he came to this place and he was willing to go all the way to this abandonment by God to experience all of these things so that we may be reconciled to him. And notice what, what happens. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Remember, he just said to the disciples just the other week, this whole temple thing, it's gonna, there's going to be some destruction. It's already happening. The tombs also, which this is very interesting, were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep. Okay, Even, even our interpretation, it's like, they were dead. <laughs> Can we just not say that? Or were they just mostly dead? And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. The death of Jesus is this cataclysmic whole world event. And so often is the case that we reduce it to this blip. But what we see happening in the end is, remember at the beginning when Jesus is calming the storm and we talk about how he has control over all of these things, and then in his death, it is the fracturing and the reorientation of how the temple functions and the world itself is experiencing an upheaval. That's what this earthquake is. And just... The magnitude of what takes place and the breaking in of the kingdom of God is on the cross and it's in the temple and it's in the ground and it is a global experience. And who gets it? The centurion. And remember back to the beginning of Matthew. Who got it back then? A centurion, when Jesus chooses to heal the centurion's person. It's, it's this fascinating centurion sandwich that exists where these people are seeing who Jesus is and they're like, yes, he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is breaking in. His kingdom is breaking in in the here and the now. And it's not this futuristic, we'll just someday we'll get there and no, it's now. It's here and now. 
And the hope of restoration is here and now and in the present. I mean, that is the most incredible thing. Incredible thing. I mean, we're excited when the trees start to bud and we're like, life is being restored. (laughs) Imagine if spring came with an earthquake and like the ground broke open. We're like, yes. I mean, how many people, you're like, when it was all windy, all of a sudden you're like, did it happen? It's gone. Yes, it's gone. We get more excited about ice out than we do about the reality of Jesus Christ breaking through in his death. And, and everyone said amen. amen in a Baptist kind of way. And notice who's there. The women. The women are there. And you're like, where are the disciples? Many women. And where had they followed? All the way they had followed Jesus from Galilee. That's where he begins way back in Matthew. And Mary is there at the beginning and she's there at the end. Okay, in this very interesting situation. You know, Jesus is wrapped in cloth in the beginning and he's wrapped in cloth in the end. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite the tomb that night. What happened the other night when Jesus says, Sit with me. The disciples went to sleep. We can't miss that. We can't miss how Matthew is choosing to highlight these very interesting things that we miss. Because we just, we just skip over them or we so decide to parse things out. And we're like, well, that doesn't, I mean, that's just a throwaway. That is not a throwaway. That's a very important thing that, that, Matthew is showing that these women are getting it. The people who aren't supposed to get it are getting it. And it's making an impact on their lives. And it's making an impact on what they do. Which is the main theme of this gospel narrative. The women, Mary and Mary, sat there opposite the tomb. And notice, even Pilate is like, I'm done with this. Notice this. They're like, hey, Pilate, uh, we need you to provide some more military reinforcement. He's like, "Uh, I'm good. I'm clean. I'm free. I'm not interested. And again, one of the things that I think has been so great about our experience in walking through the Gospel of Matthew is taking it in these big chunks and seeing how the narrative plays out. And one thing that I want to challenge us with as we go forward with next week being our last week 
in Matthew is, what if you got together with two or three other people? Maybe there were people that are here within this, that have been participating in this uh, Wednesday night thing. Maybe it's people that, that you know that, that maybe don't even come to church here, that maybe don't even go to church. And you said, hey, let's get together like once a month this summer. And let's just pick huge chunks of Matthew. And let's just read through them on our own and then get together and we'll just talk about what sticks out to us. Or maybe you choose to sit down and you choose to read it together and just say, oh, wow, that thing stuck out to me tonight or that thing uh, struck me in a particular way. Because I really think, you know, now that we've been through this, to go back through it again, some different things would start to stick out. And different people will see different things, and that'll help us to see them too, because we don't see certain things because of our own bias, and doing this together. Because remember, the, the first people that were hearing Matthew's gospel, they didn't have it in their earbuds as they were out walking in the woods. <laughs> they were all sitting together, all listening together, and then even the first people, when there was a reading of Matthew, they were all sitting together, listening to it together. And so how do we do some of those same practices together? All right. For those of you who didn't vote on your way in, I know it's very, very co complex. Do you want discussion leaders next year? Yes or no? Yes or on? Every vote that's on will be a vote no. All right. You can go to your groups.